Welcome to Gateway's podcast. We hope God speaks to you through this message from our guest speaker. For more information about Gateway, please visit www.gatewaybc.com. Good morning. We've had a uh, fantastic weekend, and I've, uh, I really messed up in the early <clears throat> service because I just didn't thank the church for uh, the way that they've prepared to receive us. And Ruth and I uh, get, a, get to go a lot of places, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of churches that can put on a really good show, but the depth that we've experienced here and the prayers and the people that just want to walk off to the side and bless you and, and just have a good word to say for the Lord, you all special people. You really, really are. And uh, uh, as, you, as you'll probably not... Uh, you probably understand we get asked a lot of places once, but you're one of these people that, you know, I might have to send my offering here for a while, see if I can get to come back. But uh, uh, I want to look at Matthew chapter 10 with you. And <clears throat> we've been walking all around that this weekend, but I, I want to apply it to where, uh, while it's not my intention, uh, you know, to do anything that's just for drama's sake, I think there's, there's just a, you can't help it. Uh, it just, faith becomes religion. And, and faith, and then your religion just becomes an arm of your culture. And it's just like you have these different aspects. You have your education, you have your military, you have your government, and, and you have your faith system. And, and whenever a country is is defined by a faith system that they don't export, uh, then that just becomes uh, something that is internalized and not used to bless others. And, and this is the situation that Jesus found himself in when he started his ministry. Now, of course, uh, from he came from heaven. He knew uh, history before humans were created, and he knows the Jewish faith, and he knows the Jewish culture well. And what he is doing, he is starting this grand experiment of not having a come and see religion any longer. He is going to create a go and tell faith, and, and it's going to become very uncomfortable for most of the Jewish people because uh, as long as we feel like we can possess God and, and we're God's favored people, uh, uh, then we just uh, sort of define ourselves for, our, for ourselves. And, and here Jesus is looking around and he's pushing a reset button. He really is. And what he says basically is that government has its uh, uh, role to play, always does, always will. Uh, your culture, the same. Uh, religion becomes, you know, something hard and something difficult to access. And what Jesus is saying to the Jewish people before he can get them to go to the Gentiles is that uh, uh, you're, it, this is not working. It's not working. And he pushes a reset button, button on the kingdom of God, and it's going to affect every strata, every portion 
of his world. And he says, here's what's not working. And Israel has been defined by its glorious history. It's been defined by its mighty arms and its, its, its military. It's been, been defined by its King David's and its Solomon's that built the temple that was worth in, in that day millions of dollars, not counting the gold and the silver and the jewels that were in the basement of that temple that other countries pray, uh, paid tribute so that Israel would not uh, uh, come with their armies and, 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 and conquer them maybe again or for the first time. And, and, and Jesus says, again, this is not working. And if you look at verse 16 in chapter 10, uh, Jesus says something that in human terms absolutely makes no sense. And it is a tenet of religion, not faith, religion. That the longest you are in a religious faith, such as Christianity, the more you think that your religious words, your religious book actually makes sense. When oftentimes it is counterculture. It doesn't make sense. And if there ever was one of those places, it is in verse 16 of chapter 10 where Jesus says, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. Who does that? Who in their right mind who, do, who would do that? You're, you're not going to convince armies, militaries. You're not con going to convince businesses. You're not going to convince the religions of this world. Uh, if you've read President Putin's world words this week, he talked about that, that uh, of the lie that love and goodness and, and negotiation is good for people. He, he says, if you have strength and you have the ability uh, to conquer and to subdue, <clears throat> that's what strong people do. That's what righteous people do. And from the faith system that he's in, that's been the history of most of that system. And so Jesus is saying, with all of that history, and it is real today, it is as real today as when Jesus spoke it, I'm going to reset the way the kingdom of God and the world works, and I'm going to do it by sending you all as sheep among wolves. Now, uh, I can tell you, as we, as a family, has have walked among some serious wolves in this world, it's not a comfortable place. It, it is not easy. It is not something that, that you want to think of about for a long period of time. It, it is something you do not because of the might of your country, the might and the strength of the mission board that sent you out, the ability of your education to figure things, it is only the power and the presence of God that loves so much that he would go to a cross and die for people. What God in history does that? And Jesus goes on and adds injury to insult and says, I'm not only going to send you as sheep among wolves, but there's so much of your culture that you can't access. Just like today, you know, I can't write senators and, and, and the president 
of either party and say, you know, uh, I, I'd like to, you know, come down to Kentucky and, and let's have coffee together. There's some things I think that I could help you with. Uh, they, they can't call Caesar. They can't send him word, write him a letter and say, let's get together. They don't even have access to their own religious leaders. They can't go to the priest. They certainly can't go to that high priest. The only person in all of their world who can access God. Once a year when he goes in to that holy of holies and that handful of men come out and tell everybody else, every man, woman, and child what the will of God is for them. And Jesus says in this situation, and uh, folks, uh, you're in, the, in, a, in a country and in a period of history that is very unique. And I want to hasten uh, for you to hear uh, believers in persecutions that have said to Ruth and I that we were thankful to God that we are persecuted and in prison in our country to make you, Ripken, more free to share Jesus in Kentucky where you're from. Wow. We're, they'll say, holding Satan hostage in his own backyard in the countries that are majority uh, uh, evil ruled, and we are fighting Satan in his own backyard to buy you a space of history where you are more free to worship God and take Christ to the ends of the earth. Wow. And Jesus said, I'm going to give you access to the highest places in government, I'm going to give you access uh, uh, to, the, to the inner workings of the temple and to the high priest. And I'm going to do this by giving you more wealth. I'm going to do this by giving you more education. I'm going to give you this because you're going to be a charismatic personality in the political world. No. Jesus said, I'm going to let you be arrested. Now, what kind of plan is that? What kind of plan is that? I'm going to let you be arrested. And they're going to do bad things to you. Read it in Matthew. They're going to beat you. They're going to persecute you. And, and, and they're going to do this from the highest parts of the sacred world. And they're going to do this in the highest part of the government, the secular world. I'm going to allow you to be arrested. And they're going to bring you before the leaders of the temple and the leaders of the government. And through your suffering, I'm sending you to be a witness to them. Through your being arrested, I'm going to give you access to places that other spiritual leaders don't have any access. And what Ruth are, and I are here to testify is that that is true all over the world today for believers. And it ought to be true for you and I. And I'm not encouraging you to go out and be nasty and mean people to get yourself arrested so you can witness somebody. I am saying if you were to hear again, not the suggestion of God, not even the call of God, but the command of Jesus to go to the ends of the earth, you're going to experience among the nations for the sake of salvation of those people, what Jesus is saying to Matthew 16. Are you willing to be sheep among wolves for my sake? I'm commanding you to go. I'm sending you out. 
Are you willing to suffer for my sake that the gospel can have access to places where it has not reached? Now, you see, what's on Ruth in my heart, especially for you this weekend, is we've been able to say throughout the weekend, but especially here at this hour for this day, I've got the privilege and the joy to look you in the heart and say to you uh, where you sit and, and what we have done oftentimes with the front of our sanctuaries, I can say to you, the altar of God is open to you. Wow. I can say for, I don't know, in your lifetime for how many thousands of time that you have access you are in the presence of God, and he has created an altar of God that, that you can come to and find healing for your relationships, find direction for your lives, most of all, find forgiveness for your sins and eternal life. And the altar of God is wherever God's people go and open their souls and their minds and their hearts and their words and they speak that word for Jesus Christ, and you open an altar of God among the people of this world. And, and, and if that's, you know, when Jesus said something like that, here's what I expected his hearers to do. Let's go off and talk about this. Let's pray and fast about this. Let's make sure that Jesus is not just having a bad day or he's angry about something. But when you get to chapter 11, it's already happening with Jesus' best friend with what I consider to be his pastor, who? John the Baptist. John the Baptist said, I've come to prepare the way for him. I'm not worthy to unlace his sandals. And when he saw Jesus coming, he said to everybody around him, behold, the Lamb of God. He takes away the sins of the earth. I, I baptize with water. He'll baptize with fire. And when he baptized Jesus, he, hear, he heard the very voice of God saying, this is my son. This is the one I love. This is the one that I approve of. And, 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 and John the Baptist heard all of this, and now he's in jail. 70% of Christians throughout the world who practice their faith, that means sharing their faith with others, live in environments of persecution. If you want to look for normal Christianity, you don't look here. You don't look in America. You look in places of persecution. That's where most of Christians are practicing their faith, where they're trying to open an altar to God, and they're experiencing being kicked out of their jobs, out of their family. They're losing their children. They're going to jail. They're going to prison. They're experiencing torture. They're experiencing the loss of life. And everything that evil has ever done, evil is still doing, trying to keep the light and turn it into darkness. And no matter how strong it is, uh, evil's going to lose. And we get to decide who's Who's, whose side are we going to be on? But in, in, in Matthew chapter 11, this best friend, this pastor uh, of Jesus is uh, John's in jail. Why? Because he's good, not because he's evil. 95% of the places Ruth and I have lived in our marriage, 
35 years out of our 45 years of marriage, we lived in places where there are dictators, where there's military rule, where there are presidents for life, which is just another name for dictator, strong men, people that can put you to to death just because you look at them improperly, let alone say something about them improperly. And John the Baptist said to Herod, uh, you think you have God-like qualities. I'm here to tell you, you're under the judgment of God. If you know your scripture, you know what Herod had done. He'd taken his brother's wife. He'd taken her into the intimate part of his house and had intimacy with her. And John the Baptist said, you are under the judgment of God. But again, make sure you're hearing things correctly. Most of, many of the people who are in the prisons of the world today are in prison for being good, not being bad. That's not your experience, especially if you are Caucasian. My experience has been from rural Kentucky that people are arrested, put in uh, uh, penitentiaries, put into jail because that's what they deserve. Where we've lived for most of our marriage, you are as likely to go to prison, uh, be tortured for being good as you are for being bad. That's John. Now, up until this part, I could almost buy into the story, but John goes off the rail. John goes off the reservation, if you will, because John, the, the strongest prophet in the New Testament, uh, a recreation, if you will, of the prophets of the Old Testament, John is in prison, and I thought he's going to die like he lived, and he's going to say to Herod, do whatever you want to do. I'm going to die the way I have lived. My eyes focus on God, and I'm going to die with his glory on my lips. And yet John did not do that. He heard what Jesus was doing, and he sent his disciples to see Jesus and asked Jesus, are you the Messiah? Are you really the Messiah? Are you really the Son of God? Or have I believed in a fairy tale? And I was, as an 18-year-old, uh, reading this for the first time, maybe two weeks after I became a Christian. And when I got to Matthew and I got to John the Baptist, I thought John the Baptist had let us all down. John the Baptist had stumbled and falling. Why would John the Baptist, of all people, doubt that Jesus was the Messiah? What I didn't know then, that Ruth and I know now, that among the strongest Christians we have been with on the earth who in their world there is a record today of suffering being incarcerated and dying for Jesus and when their backs are against the wall and when evil seemingly has them by the throat they only want to know one thing is God who they were taught he is is Jesus Lord and Savior or have they believed in a fairy tale They want you to pray for them and to assure them that they are suffering for the God of creation, the God of Jesus, the Father of Jesus, and the God of eternity. It's not that they're doubting. They're just being human enough to want to ask that very important question, is 
Jesus the Messiah. And John's question seemed to be that of doubt, stumbling, and even falling to this young Christian uh, Kentucky redneck. And, and what's worse is Jesus' reply. Because if somebody asks you today, will you go to a meal or at work this week, or someone just knows uh, you're a church person and, and they just know enough and, and they ask you, if you can just prove to me that Jesus is the Messiah, what would you say? What big old theological words might you use? We tossed a lot of those away a long time ago. Uh, what, what would you say? What, what, would you, uh, what words would you use? Well, Jesus didn't use words. He said, you go back and tell John what you hear, what you are seeing, what's going on with me and my disciples. He says in Matthew 11, without any uh, uh, backing up whatsoever, you go back and tell John that I am the Messiah, the Son of God, because the blind are regaining their sight. Where we are going with the disciples, the deaf are hearing. The lepers are being cleansed. The lame are walking. The dead are being raised. And the gospel has become so powerful in people's lives that the poorest of the poor are having access to the kingdom of God for the first time. Because in that world, if you were crippled, possessed, lame, blind, be, they even asked Jesus about that. Uh, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus asked neither of them. And he goes on and, and answers that with more. You need to look up that story and and look at it, and Jesus pushes this reset button, and John the Baptist is the first one to suffer. And Jesus said, my Messiahship is proven by what the disciples and I do in the streets of Jerusalem and beyond today. Today, if you are a follower of Jesus, the Messiahship of Christ is proven by what you do with Jesus in your homes, what you do with Jesus at work at the schools you attend or where you teach or are an administrator, the, the people that you are related to, the ones that you run into. The Messiahship of Jesus is proven Monday through Saturday by the miracles that Jesus do alongside of you in the marketplace of life. And then we gather together on the Sabbath day to celebrate together what Jesus, the Messiah, has done with us in the marketplace, in our families and at our work. And so the quick question that I'm asking and attempting to ask answer this morning is what is Jesus doing in the marketplace? If you look at Islam, well, let me, let me give you this tidbit that this was fun to learn, that, that God has created every people group on earth with a, with a mechanism, if you will, a way that they intersect with the, with the, with the supernatural. Uh, Muslims are not the same as Hindus. Hindus are not the same as Buddhists. But every culture on this earth, God has created them with a way that they intersect the supernatural. 
uh, even before they hear the name of Jesus, it's just been the way they were born. For Muslims, we have never met, after working in Islam since 1991, we have never met a Muslim man or woman that they don't have regularly dreams and visions. It's just, it's just all kinds of things that they dream about. But they'll talk about it when they're drinking coffee, the men together, and the women as they're doing uh, their things with each other. They'll, they'll talk about their dreams. They'll talk about their visions, and they'll try to figure out what the meaning is. And, and, and what is miraculous, what is happening among Muslims now, it's always been happening. The problem was we weren't there. We have, when Ruth and I went to Somalia in 1991, there were 70 million Muslims in eastern southern Africa, and we were the first workers to work with them uh, in eastern southern Africa. When we went uh, to Somalia in the height of the civil war and famine, there were four of us working in there before the U.S. military came in. We were there a mile away when Black Hawk went down. I went over to that area where that happened the next day, talked to people that saw it. Uh, we were on the floor during that night. Uh, the, the point is God's people are walking with Jesus in the hardest places on this planet. And Jesus is proving again and again who he is by what God's people do with him in the marketplace on life. And so what's different for Muslims is Jesus breaks into their dreams and visions, and he changes the content. We've interviewed about 300 Muslim men and women who are giving their lives to Jesus. 93% of them, their pilgrimage, their journey toward Jesus started with a dream or a vision. And the way we use that, uh, the way they use it, a dream is something you have when you're asleep. A vision is something you have in your waking hours, very much known throughout the Old and, and New Testament. And what Jesus will do, he will break in. God will break into that. And, and I interviewed this young man, sat for a day or so with this young man in, in the jungles of Indonesia. And he said to me, it's a long story that won't go into me, but he had... Uh, sacrificed and, and paid for a sacrifice with the local witch doctor of a, a pure white rooster. He was told to go home and to pray and fast for three days and three nights. And on the third night, he'd get the answer to all of his problems. And he had a host of them. And he said to me, Dr. Nick, on the third night, middle of the night, midnight, I heard a voice without a body that said, find Jesus, find the gospel. You know what? That's pretty clear, isn't it? But he didn't know what a Jesus was, he said. I didn't know whether, what's a Jesus? Is it a tree? Is it an animal species? A rock? He had no clue what a Jesus was. But at the end of this long story, there's 17 million Muslim peoples in his people group, three believers in that time of history. Three. This happened if you're 30 years of age or older, this has happened in your lifetime. Three believers out of 17 million people. And God took that young man, made him get out of bed, walk over the mountain, up the ocean, to a city he'd never been to, to the door of an apartment he never stood before. 
and he knocked on the door and one of those three believers, one of those three believers opened the door to him, took him in that apartment, took him, kept him for two weeks, led him to Jesus and sent him back home as a missionary. That's what God is doing. When Muslims continue in their journey, sadly, sadly, it takes them about 40 encounters with someone like you, like us, in different parts of their world, and it takes three to five years for them to come to Christ because we're not there. When Ruth and I started working with Islam, there was, for every missionary, there was 1.5 million Muslims. We're a little bit behind. There's so much increased missionary activity. There's only 750,000 Muslims for every missionary. And when God sends them a dream and a vision, and they often dream of the Bible, and the Bible is, this is, this really caught us by surprise. When Muslims dream of the Bible, it's always a blue book. If you know anything about Islam, you know their holy book, the Quran, is always green. Muslims get furious when we interpret the Bible into their language, into their, into a book form, and we put a green cover on it. They think we're being duplicitous and that Muslims will pick it up thinking it's Quran and later on find out it's a Bible. And so a lot of the workers and people that translate languages and, 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 and put the Bible in the culture for the first time, they'll put a black cover on it. But we found out that's not what God does. We've gone through almost every country in Islam and we have not seen one exception that we're Muslim men and women are literate. And ladies, in the rural parts of Islam, 90% of the women can't read or write a word. And they're not going to be able to come to the Bible uh, from reading it, or there's not going to be anybody that reads it to them. They're going to access the Bible when you are obedient to God's command to go to Muslim women learn their language, learn their culture, and when they're having dreams and visions, they can find you and you can tell them what those stories are. That's what we're doing. And uh, generally, when they dream of that blue book, it is amazing and disturbing that they will read the Bible three to five times from Genesis to Revelation before they say yes to Jesus. Um, when, once a Muslim is baptized... They know more Bible at their baptism than any PhD in Bible theology that I've ever met from a seminary. That's how hungry they are. That's how much they read it. And the third thing that God is doing in that marketplace, he is sending someone to them. Like he sent Joseph to Pharaoh. And you remember the story? Joseph had to go to jail to get to Pharaoh. He had to... It's like Ananias sent to the killer, Paul, Saul, who became the apostle Paul. It's like Philip picked up and sent by the Holy Spirit by the chariot of the Ethiopian eunuch reading Isaiah. And he asked him, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I? I don't have anybody to explain it to it. Philip said, yes, you do. Yes, you do. And that's what God is doing among Hundreds of millions of Muslims, when they have dreams and visions, when they dream of that blue book. And by the way, Ruth and I have tried to find out for 15 years from Muslims 
and from Muslims who have believed when they dream of the Bible, why is it blue? For 15 years, we've searched all over Islamic world trying to find out why does God give them a vision of a blue book? And uh, we found out the answer about a year ago, and it is astounding. It is so unbelievable how God knows the innermost thoughts of Islamic people, of Muslim people, that he puts a cover that is blue on the Bible, and praise God, we've just recently learned why it is a blue book, and if you will invite me back, I'll tell you why it's blue next time. <laughs> and don't come after the worship service and ask me, okay? But it's a blue book, and it's amazing. What's God doing in the marketplace? Among low-caste Hindus, it's totally different. The grass, this, and it's heartbreaking. For every two million low-caste Hindus, there's one medical person. And all the thousands of low-caste Hindus we've been around, we never met one that had an aspirin. When they tell the stories of their parents and their grandparents and their great, great, great grandfamilies, uh, uh, in none of those stories did we ever hear that they, any of the ancestors that they had ever had access to a medical person. And one of the most horrible things of our 35 years on the mission field is what mothers will do in Islam, but especially in low-caste Hinduism, you will not believe it will almost, no, it will make you sick of your stomach and you might have to go off to the side for a while when you observe the ways that mothers will torture their newborn babies and their young children trying to drive the demons out of their children's lives that is making their bellies hurt and their heads ache and their limbs swell and their eyes uh, are, are red from malaria and parasites and all of this. And it is horrible to watch what women will do to their children trying to heal them because like the good news of Jesus Christ, all that medical stuff that's within Christianity, we've got to export that a lot better than we're doing right now. Oh, I pray for the day, for the day to come where a Muslim mother or a Hindu mother does not have to burn uh, spots all over their children trying to heal their babies. And low-caste low uh, uh, Hindus have, uh, Hindus love gods. They, they have 150-plus minor gods. They have six or eight major gods. And there's these young evangelists who used to be Hindus and now are following Jesus. And they're going to these low-caste Hindu villages. And they're going by fours and sixes and eights. And they're saying we've got information from the God, not a God, the God. And the whole community, the 200 to 300 plus will come and sit uh, uh, down at the end of the day's work. And they will stand up in front of them, these four, six, or eight uh, former Hindus who now love and follow Jesus. And have heard his command to take the gospel to the low-caste Hindus, and, and they'll ask them, how many of you are sick? And all of their hands will be raised. 
How many of you want to be healed? And all of their hands will be raised. And, uh, uh, and they'll go among them. And just like, just exactly like in Matthew 11 today, not past tense. It's not something we study and learn about what God used to do. Uh, it's what God is doing. The blind see, the lame are walking. The deaf are hearing. Uh, the evil spirits are being cast out of them. Uh, they're being healed in the name of Jesus, and they're walking in the name of Jesus. They're hearing and seeing in the name of Jesus. And then they're asking them because miracles of healing are like dreams and visions. They don't bring you to Jesus. They don't give you eternal life. They just give, get your attention. And make you anxious to find out spiritual truth. And they are asking those low caste Hindus who have been healed. Uh, uh, do you want to be introduced to the God, Jesus Christ, who healed you? And they're saying yes. And they're sharing the gospel with them clearly for days at a time. All of those people are believing. And we've been in three movements among low-caste Hindus in India, and the real miracle is their sins are being forgiven, and 10 to 20,000 low-caste Hindus are being baptized each month. Now, that's pretty much fun. You ought to go to that baptism. It takes a lot of water, and you don't do it in dry season. Otherwise, you've got a, in Baptist tradition, we have to Put them down and turn them over. Make sure both sides get wet. Now, I'm being a little irreverent there, but I, not too much. It's sometimes the practice. But uh, seeing 10 and 20,000 people coming to Christ, wow. That's what God is doing in our lifetime today in the marketplace. You go to China and, and you ask them, and they'll tell you that prior to 1970, every house church that started in China started through miracles of healing. And you'll watch them. Uh, uh, they're pastors, they're evangelists, they're musicians. Uh, they won't meet in groups larger than 30. And when things get tougher, they won't meet in groups of larger than 15. And when things are really dangerous, they'll meet in one family unit. And they'll change the day of the week they have church. They'll change the house each week that they have church. They'll even change the time of day, trying to stay one step ahead of the persecutors because 40% of your brothers and sisters, men and women, old and young, rural and urban, that, that love Jesus and are taking his message throughout the towns and cities of China, 40% of them at any one time are in prison for being a pastor, being an evangelist, being a deacon, being an elder. They're, they're in prison because they are good, good people. And, and we've watched them. We've watched them on the North Korean border with a family from there that believed that they'll get together in their house and very quietly they'll tell the story from the Bible and they'll talk about that story. And when they get ready to sing their praise songs that they have written, they'll bring their four chairs together where that family's knees are touching. And when they sing, they move their lips 
saying the words of that song, but they don't dare let any musical sound come out because if it goes through the thin wall of the apartment or out the window of the door of the house, without, almost without exception, by the time before the sun goes down, security police are going to be there, and they don't just arrest the adults. They arrest three generations in that family. They take grandparents, parents, and children, and they put them in a labor camp, and except for one or two that we've read about, that have escaped and they weren't believers, you don't ever come out of that. For singing to God, you go to a labor camp and you don't come out. We sat with 150 leaders in one of the biggest movements of God on earth in the millions. And 150 Chinese leaders sitting in that compound where they took me 18 hours out in the countryside somewhere. And I, uh, I can't tell you where it was. I don't know where it was. And I watched as some of the most godly men and women, they had seven Bibles among them. But they had memorized 70% of the stories of the Word of God, and they were sharing that everywhere they went, especially in prison where they were taken. I watched this and got up one morning and watched them tearing their seven Bibles into shreds so every leader there could go back to their village, to their town, to their city, with at least one book of the Bible that they would have to share from the first of that book to the last of that book. I've watched miracles, activities like this throughout the house churches in China. It has revolutionized and deepened my faith, learning again and again that everything that God has ever done, God is still doing. Wow. Wow. And then they asked me about you. I was sort of ready for that, but not ready for their response. They asked me, since there are God's people in America, how do they do the faith? And so I, I described you, and I described this man of God that has led this church for three decades. And I described your praise teams and your choirs and your Bible studies and your Sunday schools and your vacation Bible schools. And, and I just expected them just to burst out laughing with joy and, and, and shouting praises and hugging one another. And they wept. They sobbed. It was like I'd taken their hearts out and crushed it. And I was so upset, and, and I said, what, 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 what did I do? What did I say? They said, you don't understand. I said, I, I, I don't know what I've done wrong. Ruth's not here to tell me, you know, what I've done wrong, right, guys? And, and, and they said, you really don't understand, Ripken, we want to know. And they're just sobbing. Why does God love his children in America so much more than he loves his children in China. I was crushed. I was. I'm thinking, uh, all uh, being arrested and all the people that are 
leading to Christ, the, the, the healings that's taken place. I went to a village next to where those leaders were meeting, and I went over there and spent a day among those Chinese people with an interpreter. I do research. I've got the uh, credentials for that. I, I do disaster relief. We've got the credentials for that. But after being there for half a day, I asked them, who are those people over there meeting? They said, oh, those are the people that love Jesus. I said, really? Yeah. They said, we had a little girl that uh, passed away, was laying in the bed, three years of age. And they came over and prayed over her. And she got up out of bed and she asked to, for some food and went out and played with her friends. You know what that sounds like? Sounds like the Bible to me. Sounds like the word of God uh, to me. And, 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 I, and, and now they're weeping and they're, they're crushed. And, and I, I said, what's wrong with you? And, and, and why are you weeping? And they said, you really don't understand. I said, I don't have a clue. And, and they, got, they, got, uh, they got hurt, almost angry. And they don't do that to the outsider. But they got so close to me. And they asked, Ripken, which is the greatest miracle? You tell us that you've got seven Bibles, seven different translations on your desk in Ethiopia, and you've watched us tearing our Bibles into shreds so everybody can have one book. We want to know, Dr. Ripken, which is the greatest miracle. You've heard us talk about how 100,000 Chinese are healed by God. Maybe 100 will figure out their healing came from a God, but only three, maybe five at most, can figure out that God's name was Jesus and find salvation uh, 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 through him and through because of that miracle, because of that dream, which is the greatest miracle, Ripken. You tell us when you need knee surgery or shoulder surgeries or whatever they are, uh, and I can do this. We've done this. I can call a Baptist deacon who's an orthopedic surgeon in Jacksonville, Florida, fly in on a Saturday, go to church with them on Sunday, see him on Monday, operate it on Wednesday, and he gets us ready and sends us back out uh, two to three weeks later. And I, they understood from me, I can do that seven days a week, 24 hours a day. We have access to that kind of miracle care. And the Chinese believers wanted to know, Ripken, which is the greatest miracle? That's what the Hindus want to know. Two million of us. We don't have access to an aspirin. And Ripken, they ask in China and in India, you have access to medical care 24-7. We want to know, Ripken, which is the greatest miracle? You, you tell us that this pastor for three decades can stand here and proclaim the gospel and the praise team can sing and you have it on radio and you have it on your television and, and you have this and none of these pastors, none of these worship leaders, none of those people who run the television stations and the radio programs, you're telling us none of them are beaten? You're telling us None of them have their children stolen from them. None of them go to jail. And none of them are killed. Ripken, you want to tell us which is the greatest miracle? And I wept. And I wept.
Because what have I called this for a good portion of my early Christian life in rural Kentucky? You know what I called church? I called it normal. You know what I called the body of Christ and all the things we get to do? I called it common. It's one on every street corner and on top of every hill and the bottom of every holler. Uh, and, and worst of all, when I thought about the church, I, I had thought that it's what I deserved. That there was a church somewhere that God created just for me, for, for the kind of church that I like and that I, I wanted. And I called it normal and I called it common and I called it what I deserved. We met a young lady who lived and grew up among the Taliban and she dreamed of that blue book and she read it three to five times. There's nobody, not another believer in her world. And she came to Christ. And I've, we almost never see that by herself. No one explained it. She found forgiveness for her sins. She read it on the third time. She read it through. She gave her life to Jesus. When we met her, she had led 30 Muslim women to Christ. They were baptized, gathered into groups. We'd never seen that before or since then. This was an amazing young lady. And the United Nations want, wanted to settle her in St. Louis, Missouri, and I begged her to stay because there's no one like her in that world. And even though she was concerned of the realities of being beaten and imprisoned and probably killed, I asked her, what if, it, if you're staying here causes Many of the 17 million Muslim women in your people group have access to Jesus and they will believe in him because you stay here and suffer for him. Because Jesus says when persecution comes upon you, uh, you, you, you get in an airplane and fly uh, to St. Louis. He said, no, when persecution comes upon you, you flee. You don't have to stay there and get killed and get your family killed, but you go to the next village and go to the next city and go to the next town. And there's no evidence that Jesus, because of persecution, would remove one person and their witness from that environment. That's, that's what they are experiencing. And, and we, we, this young lady got to St. Louis, Missouri before I got home with Ruth and we had a contact for her. Ruth called her, sent her a plane ticket. Uh, she came to where we were on furlough in rural Kentucky on a college campus. And we took her to church for the first time in her life. She never, there never was a building anywhere she was. There wasn't a congregation. And we sat back over here with her. And she sat between Ruth and I. And that service started in that church with a baptismal uh, uh, experience. A whole family was baptized. Father, mother, uh, two teenage daughters, a 12, 13-year-old son. And as this baptism is taking place, this young believer, church for the first time, begins to squirm and sigh and make, you know, noises that I thought she was having a panic attack because she'd never been in a room where a man and a woman sat together or at work together, even husbands and wives, let alone be in a room where... A young man and young woman might be sitting together unmarried. And I thought, well, this is way too much for her. And I said, sister, if you need to go out, it's okay. There's nothing wrong. 
you and Ruth just go out and I'll be out as soon as the service is over. And she started uh, speaking in a high, loud whisper. I can't believe it. I can't believe it. You're telling me that a whole family is being baptized. Are you telling me? Are you telling me that no one is going to be beaten, that no one's going to go to jail? Are you telling me those women will not be forced uh, to marry old Muslim men in the mosque? Are you telling me that that young boy will not be sent to the most conservative village in his family? Are you telling me no one loses their job, no one is beaten, and no one goes to jail, and no one is killed? She said, if you were to fly me back to my country, and I gathered those believing women together and told them of such a miracle as this, she said, they would never believe me again. My witness is ruined because there's no one in my world could ever believe that God could do such a miracle in public. And she asked Ruth and I in a loud whisper with people listening in, why is everybody sitting here? Why aren't they up? praising God? Why aren't they up clapping? Why aren't they up just singing automatically and uh, spontaneously? She said, I think, I think I'm going to stand up and shout. There's nothing in her culture that would call for that or allow that. I said, well, girl, sister, stand up and shout. If they kick you out, Ruth will go with you. you. No reason you go by yourself. And she said, Why is everybody sitting here? Don't they see that there is not a miracle like this anywhere in the world that I know? I wish you would. But most things like this, you have to go and see it and touch it and taste it. And you you might have trouble that millions of Muslims are having dreams and visions God's breaking in, and they're even dreaming of Jesus. A man in clothed in white with scars in his head, his hands, his side, and his feet. And that man will speak in their language and say, I am Jesus the Messiah. You find me, you'll find salvation. You'll find good news. And they are going to one and two and three countries looking for us because we're not where they are even today. That's what we're seeing God do all over the world. And yet, you might have trouble believing that's how God still works. That the Bible is still in present active tense. And most of you probably, like I did, would struggle with the fact that uh, tens of thousands of low-caste Hindus are being saved And what started them on that pilgrimage was miracles of healing that are right in the Bible. And you might struggle that Chinese go to prison and lead thousands of people to Christ. But maybe that's their miracle, you think. But what I'm asking you as I really want to wrap up, what do you call this? What do you call this body of Christ? Do you think what you get... to do whenever you want to, actually. Do you think this is normal? you think this is common? Do you think this is what we deserve? Listen, set aside 
the miracles of the rest of the world? Will you claim the miracle that God is doing here today? And how most of the believers in the world in which Ruth and I have spent our lives, they can't imagine the miracle that is you and what you have. We can say to you now again, the altar of God is open. You can come and find whatever it is that you need in your soul, in your life. And you can take it to someone else. But what I can't say to you, 70% of the world, the altar of God is open because it'd be a lie. Because there's no one there. There's no Bible there. There's no way to access it. Oh, church, will you not claim your miracle this morning? Looking in that mirror and seeing yourself the way that most believers see what we have here today as an overt, God-breathed, God-ordained miracle from his throne that he has visited upon us in this place today. Hear the words of the Lord for you. Again, the altar of God is open.